Hello, I'm Robert Royal, and these are the TCT Podcast, the Catholic Thing Podcast. We've got something a little bit different for you today. We're recording on December 29th, 2023, and I have with me this time a group. Usually we've been doing uh, personal conversations, but we've got a group conversation for you today on several important end-of-the-year topics. Uh, We've got with us our old friend, Father Gerald Murray, who's familiar to most of you who follow this podcast. And Father Murray is, of course, a canon lawyer and a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. He's a pastor of a parish in New York. But we're also fortunate to have with us today Diane Montagna, who's a a very prominent uh, American, but a journalist living in Rome at this point. And uh, I'm sure you'll be very happy to hear from her because she brings some very pointed comments to the various issues that she addresses. We also have with us Edward Penton, who is a regular writer for the National Catholic Register and is also a resident in Rome. So welcome to you all. Merry Christmas. Uh, We're in the afterglow of Christmas, and uh, I wish we could say we're all happy about what we see when we are looking back into 2023 and forward to 2024. But um, I'm looking forward to what you all have to say, and I'm sure that our listeners and our viewers are eager to hear that as well. So let's start with this, because right before Christmas, uh, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a document called Fiducia Supplicans, which purports to be a explanation of a so-called development and how blessings can be given. Now, normally blessings wouldn't be a controversial topic, but this particular document went out of its way, and it doesn't seem evident why it had to go out and do this, but it went out of its way to say that people in so-called irregular relationships, irregular unions, in other words, people who are divorced and remarried, uh, people who are cohabiting, but even people who are in same-sex relationships can receive a non-liturgical blessing. And we'll get into some of the the questions that, of course, that so-called development of blessings involves. But before we do that, I'd really like to, to talk with you all a bit about the reaction, because it's been an unusual reaction in that bishops, whole dioceses, it may be whole continents like Africa, have announced that they are not going to follow the uh, the disciplines that have, that were specified in that document. And the priests have some discretion to decide who can receive a blessing, um, but it's a complicated situation. Diane, let me ask you first, could you tell us a bit about what the reaction has been around the world? Because it's really quite astonishing. It is, Bob, yes. Um, so right after, do- after the document was released, a, a backlash of responses uh, start flowing in from uh, individual bishops as well as entire bishops' conferences around the world. So, for instance, you had, uh, certainly from Africa, you had the Bishops' Conference of Zambia, Malawi, Nigeria, um, Togo, uh, Cameroon was particularly strong. You had the Archbishop of Astana. He's the Archbishop of Astana, Kazakhstan, um, Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who some of the viewers will know, is his auxiliary bishop. They responded straight away. Poland followed. You had the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church um, respond on behalf of the entire Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, as well as a whole host. The Most notably yesterday, uh, the Hungarian Bishops' Conference, 
responded, uh, and you had people like Archbishop Chaput, who I think uh, during the, this pontificate has remained relatively quiet uh, and uncritical. Um, he responded of his own accord, um, as did many other bishops, as well as um, confraternities, whether it's the British confraternity, the US confraternity, or others of pre, um, confraternities of priests saying that uh, this would cause too much scandal among the faithful. And so they don't really see a way to implement this document. And so they won't be. Yeah, I'm hearing from parish priests that they've never seen this kind of reaction among their parishioners, that, that, that people um, in, in re relatively large numbers are actually call, calling their pastors. And they're very, very perturbed about what this all portends. Father or, or uh, Edward, would you like to comment on I'll just jump in, Bob. Yes, exactly. This, uh, you know, what Diane cites and what you're referring to is uh, a happy result of, of this disaster because the document itself is uh, worthless as a magisterial document. I say that not you know, to create a, a stir, but simply to identify what it, it has no value because it denies what the church has always taught. And it denies it while claiming at the same time not to accomplish what it intends to do. Uh, Cardinal Fernandez gave an interview uh, to the pillar in which he said, blessing a union, blessing a couple is not blessing a union. That is simply not true. Once you describe people as a couple, they are in a form of union. Uh, the church in its previous document about homosexuality refers to homosexual unions. They never call them couples. It's, it, there's a word game going on. They want people to accept the homosexual lifestyle as being worthy of a blessing but then they pretend we're not blessing the ceremony where it came about or the enduring union, just a relationship, meaningless. So that's why I say it's worth this document uh, essentially is recognized throughout the world as being uh, not a true expression of the faith of the church, but an attack on the faith of the church. Yeah, then that despite disclaimers, even within the document, there seems to be a kind of a, a internal self-contradiction. Edward, what reactions are you noticing? Well, very similar. Um, but what I've noticed, which I think is interesting, is how surprised people seem to be, surprisingly, uh, that this document came out. Because I don't know if you remember back in the Synod on the Family, we were all uh, saying that this sort of thing was, was going to happen, even when the, the interim report came out uh, in the middle of the Synod on the Family in 2014. People were taught this, this subject came up then. And I think there was already uh, predictions that this was going to happen. And then, of course, you had the Morris Letizia came out, which is the, the post-synodal uh, apostolic exhortation on that synod. And that, too, um, obviously laid the groundwork for this. Uh, and so I think the common thread, which I think is being revealed through all of this, and a lot of the discord that we've had for the past 10 years, is uh, Cardinal Fernandez, because he was the ghostwriter for a lot of these documents. I think the Evangelii Gaudium, for example, then moving on to Amoris Letizia, and now this. And there is this common thread of, of, of as I say, discord. And, and this, this whole issue really has been sort of the, always in the background of, of all of these problems that we've had, whether it's communion for divorce and remarriage or, or other aspects. So I think that's quite interesting that this, this is all sort of being quite revelatory again uh, about a certain aspect of this pontificate. Yeah, yeah. Look, this uh, raises a question in my mind, and I'm sure in other people's minds too. What 
does this say about synodality? Because one of the things that synodality, which no one seems to be able to define exactly, but one of the one of the aspirations of synodality is to listen to everyone, to give everyone a voice. And we see that there's this varied reaction. We have priests that are pro these blessings. We have priests that are against it. We have bishops' conferences in Poland who reject it. There seem to be those in Germany who like it very much, although maybe not thinking that it goes far enough. But this clearly has an impact on the, the, even the process of synodality that we've been involved in over the past year. Father Murray, uh, what, what, how do you think about that in terms of synodality? Well, synodality really was the word of the year. And again, there's no definition found in any dictionary that I know. And uh, even the first synod on synodality never came up with a, a real definition. There's something in the, the final concluding document attempts to summarize it, but it's still very vague. Um, it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to listen, and then it's a third thing to agree with. So I think the, the ambiguity of the word synodality is meant to convey the leadership of the church, the Pope and his associates have a way of seeing the things. They want everyone else to spend a lot of time listening to them, eventually to come to an agreement uh, with what the leadership is saying. But it's obvious at the last uh, at the meeting of the, the Synod in October, there was no interest in promoting the homosexual lifestyle or its acceptance in the church among the assembled body. There were individual elements, particularly from Northern Europe, pushing it. So what happens? The Holy See then decides, well, we're gonna short circuit the whole thing. They remove uh, any reference to LGBT from the final concluding report, and then we get this document sprung on us. So this confirms my, uh, how can I say, <laughs> my suspicions of the pontificate, uh, which is that when, uh, when there's a call for people to tell us what, what we think, they only want to hear the answer that they're searching for. And I think that's what this reveals. Diane, you made a very pointed comment during the uh, synod on synodality. That <laughs> which, us... which one, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I point to, to one of them. I mean, you're, you're, you're famous for actually probing these, uh, these neuralgic points. But I, I, in particular, I remember when you said, because people were saying, oh, the Holy Spirit is going to lead us to various conclusions. Or, and you said, how are we going to know whether it's the Holy Spirit or some other spirit that's making the decision? What's your take on how this um, controversy, this mixed reaction uh, reflects back on synodality over the past year? Well, I'm, I'm, I expect that many people are going to see synodality, the entire process, all of the money that went into this process, I think they'll see synodality as a bit, I hate to say it, but as a bit of a farce and as a cover word for dictatorship. That is, they didn't, um, they weren't able to get LGBT through the final document or through the, the final document for this portion of the synod. So, you know, those in leadership could see that there was enough opposition even with what many considered a rigged synod this year, they still had enough. Op there was still enough opposition in order to get um, to get LGBT removed from the document. And just a few short weeks after that, synodal body expressed, you know, its its common its common thinking 
uh, this document is imposed on all of the world's bishops. And, you know, if I, someone correct me, but I believe that Cardinal um, Muller pointed out, former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that this document did not even go through the proper process within the congregation. So I think on many levels, a lack of listening and a lot lack of the normal process uh, played out. Edward, I noticed today in the news feeds that I consult here in the United States that um, in a Spanish interview, Cardinal Fernandez, uh, who's the point man on this document, and it, it apparently is going to be going to Germany to talk with them about uh, the, uh, the restrictions, we hope, that, uh, that the document places on, on bishops like the German bishops who have been preparing formal liturgical blessings for uh, same-sex couples. But I saw in this Spanish interview that uh, Cardinal Fernandez said even during, uh, prior to his appointment in September as the head of the dicastery, that they were working on this document, which means that they were working on it during the actual Synod on Synodality. And uh, some people, Father uh, uh, Raymond D'Souza, for example, have raised the question, did you share with the people participating in the Synod that this document was in process? And I know you followed this very carefully. Do you have any thoughts about, I mean, if this process was irregular in, in, within the dicastery, it's even stranger that it was going to trump whatever came out of the Synod itself. Well, again, Bob, I mean, it's... It... <laughs> We've seen this before. I mean, going back again to the midterm report of the first family synod, if you remember, they brought out the, the, the issue of homosexuality, which wasn't even discussed at that synod, and then gave it to the media. And so, of course, it made the, the impression in the media before the, anyone else. Then, of course, you had the, the synodality issue was imposed on the youth synod uh, when none of the youth people knew what synodality was, and suddenly it was in their final document. Uh, and so each time you've had this, this, this deception uh, and imposition of different things, using the synodality, as Diane said, as this kind of mask or cover for what they really want to push through. And, and so all this is never really any surprise. And the fact that uh, Cardinal Fernandez was working on this before the synod shows you that uh, it's just, it's just uh, everything is normal, really. I mean, this is what they've done so many times in the past. So... Um, but yeah, I think it's it's uh, it just shows that this this pontificate, sadly, is is one very much it seems of of a deceit and as many people have said lately, sophistry. You've got it in in the documents. You've got it in the way they act, uh, and you're just seeing it all playing out, um, perhaps more clearly than it was before. But certainly, it's the same sort of modus operandi that we've seen for the past ten years. And Bob, let me jump in on this because I'm reminded Ed brings up the history of that first synod uh, on, on the family. But even before that, you may remember, shortly after the Pope was elected, he met with a group of religious from Argentina. And in the conversation, he said, well, when you get called to the CDF, go to the meeting, the Doctrine of the Faith, listen to what they have to say, smile, then go home and do what you want. That's what's Ooh. exactly happening Ooh. now. <laughs> the African bishops have smiled and said, no, we're going to do what we want. So in other words, the medicine that was used to resist in the past, uh, you know, the, the, the decrees of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith is now being employed in, in, the, in the positive sense, in my opinion, about a document that contradicts what the Doctrine of the Faith has been saying for all this time. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of contradictions out there. Look, I know we're going to come back to this subject in this podcast and also in articles at the Catholic thing in 2024, but let me turn to another set of subjects right now. I read in the news this morning that Cardinal Burke met with the Pope. Um, he apparently came out and, and more or less said no comment to the press. Uh, lots of people have observed that Cardinal Burke, as I'm sure many of our listeners and viewers know, uh, is it's said that he's going to be thrown out of his apartment which is a Vatican apartment, it's kind of subsidized in Rome, and his stipend is going to be removed. At the same time, Cardinal Becciu has just been uh, convicted by a Vatican court of having mishandled funds, and he's been sentenced to, what, five and a half years, something like that in prison. We don't know what that is actually going to mean, but he remains in his apartment. Uh, the rather strange case of Father Rupnik, who was a serial sexual abuser, he is still a priest in good standing. Um, he was incarnated in, in uh, uh, former Yugoslavia in, I think, his, his, his home diocese. Diana, you're, you're a follower of these things in Rome. What are we to make uh, on these, this other dimension of incoherence that we seem to be seeing in the Vatican? Is it just incompetence? Is it just chaos or is there an underlying rationale to this? Well, I think many observers would say that, well, you often hear the quote these days, uh, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, not even justice. Um, whether that's the case, you know, we don't know the, pop, the Pope's it's a, it's an old, It's an old Peronist saying. For yes, I know, Peron. I know. One, but one it's I just want to make that clear. Right. Yes, but it's being used uh, quite often around here. I would like to make a couple of clarifications, if I could, about the case of Cardinal Burke, just because there, there were many reports going around on, you know, what was taken away from him and what wasn't the deal with the apartment. Uh, regarding his stipend, um, the Piatto Cardinalizio, it's called, um, a certain stipend given to given to cardinals in order to take to, for them to take care of the things of their life as a cardinal. Um, because Cardinal Burke no longer had an office that he that he held, um, in which case it would have been considered like a salary uh, in worldly terms. But because he no longer had an office, was at the age of retirement, I mean, what the Pope sadly did was he took away uh, Cardinal Burke's only retirement benefit. Um, and Cardinal Burke, people won't know this, but Cardinal Burke does not have another source of a pension or anything from, you know, an archdiocese or another ecclesiastical institution. Um, his health care was all, also taken away. Now, the monthly cost of that probably here at the Vatican is not much. But for a man who's in his mid-70s, uh, people will remember, and many of the viewers probably pray for Cardinal Burke when he was on a ventilator for nine days um, during COVID, and probably by... Uh, the intercession of Our Lady, I think that's what he would say, survived COVID uh, to take away his health care, to take away his pension. And then with the apartment, it's not that the Pope was going to decided to take away his his pen, his his apartment, but that he was going to charge him. Uh, and uh, maybe it was four times, I think Edward could comment on this. I believe he tweeted something out four times the amount that he was currently paying. But of course, without receiving his retirement benefit, so with nothing to live on. Um, 
So I do think it's important to clarify those things. But I think this is a continuation of old cases that I know Father Murray has talked about, whether it's um, uh, Zanqueta, the case where the Pope, you know, um, created a position for him uh, in APSA, who takes care of the Vatican properties. Um, and Rupnik, I mean, Ed can speak to this, but Edward had a, a, an article earlier this week in which he pointed out that Rupnik is, he's incarnated in, in this new diocese, but he's living here in Rome at the Centro Aletti. Uh, so he, it seems that he's carrying on his normal life here in Rome. Um, so it's more of the same, really. Yeah, Edward, do you want to get in on this? So clarify some of these points for us. Yes. Um, well, no, Diane's exactly right. That, that, it, that is the, the issue with Cardinal Burke. Um, and it, it, what I also found was quite shocking too, or certainly interesting, is that he wasn't given any uh, formal notification about, um, you know, that he's going to have his apartment raised so that he can't afford it and going to have his uh, salary withdrawn. None of that was told to him um, by the Pope himself. It just came via unofficial channels. Um, and the first he knew of it, he wasn't receiving his his stipend, and and that his and he got a notification that his his rent was being quadrupled, over quadrupled, so that he couldn't afford it. Um, now I did um, actually ask an Italian lawyer about this, and I said, in civil law, in Italian law, would this ever be allowed? What, how would you see this? And he said, absolutely not. You'd never get an employer or a state uh, imposing this on somebody. Uh, because it wouldn't be a, it would be criminal, um, it, you know, we're totally against the law. So there's no way that they could do this in in civil law. So uh, so that's uh, that is huge. According, um, referring to uh, Father Rupnik, yes, I did uh, make inquiries about whether where he was living, uh, and I got confirmation that he wasn't living in Slovenia, uh, but he is living at his Aleti Center in Rome and just carrying on as normal. There's no been no real. Uh, sanction, as far as I can see, uh, about him. And of course, that's why he had to leave the Jesuits, was because he wasn't obeying their restrictions. Uh, and now he's free from the Jesuits. He's just carrying on without any, seemingly any uh, authority to, over him to say, you've got to stop, um, you've got to stop doing what, you, what we told you to stop doing. Uh, and that's, to, so he's just carrying on as normal. I think he's under, uh, well, he's clearly incarnated in Slovenia, but because he's not in Slovenia, he's not having any real oversight over here so um so he's just carrying on as normal and uh and cardinal burke and others who try to uphold the church's teaching are being punished but uh, that's an old story that we know quite well now right. well murray you're a canon lawyer so what do you make of this uh, rubnik case I, mean, I know you and i have talked about this privately but uh it's very puzzling really isn't it i mean it he's he seems to be as guilty as a person could possibly be even a blasphemous uh, kind of sexual liturgical acts that he was going to commit. And yet I thought that he he was going to be brought under some kind of canonical process or legal process. Can you enlighten us a bit about that? Sure. No, the, the canonical history here is, is both uh, lengthy, complicated, and horrifying. Uh, he was convicted by the uh, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith of having violated uh, the, the canon which prohibits pardoning a partner in a sexual sin, which is an automatic excommunication. Uh, that was lifted uh, and within a few weeks, but at the time there was no notification that he had been uh, excommunicated or that the penalty had been lifted. That came out in a leak, which was reported in the secular media, 
when that followed, then we learned also that the Jesuits had done a study, uh, an investigation and recommended to the, uh, the congregation, Dr. Faith asked the Jesuits to do a study on these further charges of sexual abuse uh, involving people under his spiritual care, uh, nuns and novices, and that the Jesuits recommended he be prosecuted, and then it was announced we can't prosecute because of statute of limitations, even though the statute of limitations is regularly lifted during the sex abuse crisis for similar crimes. Uh, the Pope himself claimed at one point, I had nothing to do with this process except for one small procedural uh, rule that I changed. <clears throat> even though, you have to say, uh, when it comes to lifting an excommunication uh, of a priest uh, imposed by the CDF for that crime of pardoning a partner in a sexual sin, that can only be done by the Pope or the CDF at his discretion. So the, then the Pope announced after the incarnation uh, controversy, because yes, he is essentially a priest in good standing of a Slovenian diocese working with permission of his bishop in Rome, and with the, you know, that implies that the Roman authorities have not told him to leave Rome. So he's being treated as if he did nothing. Once a priest is under investigation for serious crimes, they should announce precautionary measures, such as he cannot celebrate the sacraments in public, he cannot engage in spiritual guidance of, of people, he should not dress as a cleric, he should be restricted into a living situation where he's under some surveillance. None of that's been announced. In fact, we don't know which tribunal is handling this. Is it the tribunal of the of the uh, of Rome? Is it the diocese of Rome? Is it the CDF? What's going on? Well, long and short of it is, as in so many canonical proceedings during the pontificate, uh, things are announced publicly and then there's no follow through. It's like the Vos Estes investigations of bishops. The law is there to investigate bishops. We never know which bishops are under investigation, and we never know what the outcomes are until the bishops themselves often reveal it. So without getting into too much detail, there are more questions and answers here. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be back with this one again in 2024 as well. Let's uh, roll the camera back and take a little bit wider perspective. The Holy Father said some very interesting things in his Urbi et Orbi address. For 2023, he denounced uh, many situations of war around the world and oppression. Um, he spoke about Ukraine. He spoke about uh, uh, Palestine and Israel. He spoke about Africa. One of the things many people are, are concerned about is he doesn't seem to speak enough. He does mention it occasionally, but enough about persecution of Christians. And we know that in... in um, Recently, there has been even further persecution in Nicaragua, which is a country that he doesn't seem to want to touch. Uh, Jimmy Lai, the Catholic businessman and journalist and, and liberty uh, fighter in China, uh, is now undergoing a um, juridical process. Uh, what are we to make of this? There's, there seems to be you know, the concern for the things that we're all concerned about, but the specifically Catholic and Christian persecutions or Christian problems around the world um, don't seem to be getting a lot of attention. Diane, is that your perception of where we are right now? Yes, yeah, certainly. Though you've had you've had some news stories, although the point of these news stories or um, often is why why is the Christian persecution of Christians not getting more coverage? For instance, just today, um, Inez San Martin, she's a and uh, from Argentina, she was part of the Vatican press corps. 
uh, today she said that uh, the, yet another priest, in fact, she says the third priest in the past 36 hours has been kidnapped in Nicaragua. Uh, you also have the horrific case of the Christmas slaughter in Nigeria. I believe the death count is over 150. It may be well over uh, that of Christians just slaughtered in, in their village on Christmas. Um, so yes, it is at least the, the, the glaring absence of coverage by the world's media to these stories is getting some attention among Catholics. Mm -hmm. Edward, do you, do you want to add to that at all? I know you follow these issues very carefully. Yes. Um, it's hard to tell why he doesn't. I mean, he has spoken out occasionally. I remember when he was on the trip to uh, to Burma, he spoke about the Rohingya and, and so forth. So he does speak out when he wants to. But as you say, it is rare and it's not clear why he doesn't. I mean, with, with the China situation, of course, and the Uyghurs, he doesn't want to upset the Chinese Communist Party because of the agreement they've made with, with Beijing. But then the other issues, it's, I don't know, he just doesn't seem to, he did go to Iraq, of course, that was a, a big thing, but uh, but his his actual public pronouncements are pretty sporadic and, and not consistent. And um, even though he does speak out occasionally, and uh, always with Pope Francis, you, you can speculate about why he does and doesn't do things, but when, it's very difficult to know for sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why he's not speaking about the Nigeria persecution, for instance, or, or really singling out that, because there have been so many Christians who've been persecuted and, and martyred over there. Yeah, something like 4,000 in 2023. Exactly. Martyr. Well, we're getting near the end of our time, so I'm going to ask each of you uh, a, a, an impossible question. Two parts. 2024 is just a couple days away. So let me ask each of you, what do you think are going to be the major stories? What's, what's going to be happening in 2024? And what should be happening? Because if you ask me, the church should be really turning up the heat under evangelizing. That, around the world, we, we, we see the church's presence slipping away, and we need to turn up that evangelizing zeal that seems to have disappeared. Um, sometimes the Pope speaks of proselytizing. He doesn't want that, but it isn't always clear. He distinguishes between that and evangelizing. So let me begin, Father, with you. Uh, what do you think are going to be the major news stories in 2024, and what should they be? Well, I, I, there are a bunch of them that I can think of, Bob. I'll try to go quick. The first is going to be the fallout from uh, this homosexual blessing document, uh, because the split that we talked about earlier is only going to be accentuated. <clears throat> the Holy See is going to have to speak and, and answer questions. Fernanda, Cardinal Fernandez is already doing that. Uh, in my opinion, this is going to be the major uh, in inheritance of this pontificate, the attempt to normalize homosexuality in the life of the church and the rejection of that attempt by large segments of the Catholic population. Second story is going to be papal health because, of course, just turned 87 uh, in the wheelchair, uh, walking with a cane, uh, you know, had the bad flu about a month ago, had to cancel a trip to Dubai. So his health is going to be a constant preoccupation, of course, there's one thing the world media is looking forward to as a 
you know, audience gathering, it's another conclave because that's one of the few times when the world's media basically hones in on Rome and the Catholic Church. Uh, third story, which we talked about already, is synodality. I think it's now going to be dead on arrival because the split among the bishops in the world is going to say, what's the point of spending a month in Rome with facilitators and saying prayers to the Holy Spirit to guide us when the agenda that we are not interested in is being imposed? You know, think about the transgender godparents. When in the world did that ever arise as an issue for the world's bishops? But they got, they got a document, so... Um, and then I'll say a fourth thing is going to basically be where, it, who, what leaders in the church are going to emerge in the midst of all this controversy and the Pope's declining health as likely candidates uh, to be elected Pope or to influence that selection process. So um, I, your point is great. We should be talking about the beauty of the gospel. You know, there's one thing I realize, I live in New York City. Secularism makes people unhappy and depressed. <laughs> So if we talk about the beauty of receiving the sacraments, of, you know, honoring the Virgin Mary and doing what Catholics do, works of charity, that's going to bring happiness to the world. Unfortunately, we're submerged with these internal fights, but those fights need to be fought. I'll just say that. Diane, you uh, want to take a crack at those two questions? Well, I mean, Father Murray covered things extremely well. I think I would probably add. Yeah, one. I, I put you. I put you in an impossible situation. It's following okay. The good father. <laughs> I, it, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, it, um, I suppose what I would add, given on the subject of both the Pope's health and this document, I do think that, you know, it is it the case? We don't know if it's the case, but is it the case that, you know, the Pope's health, he's, he is 87 years old and he's not in good health, whatever the particular case, uh, case of his health is. You know, what is it the case that they've pushed this document through because they think that there's not much left time, much time left in this pontificate? Whatever the case might be, I do think that fiducia supplicans is going to be a defining factor for the next conclave. Uh, and so the responses to the responses from the bishops, from the bishops' conferences right now, I think is going to set a, send a, a strong signal and also be remembered. Uh, among the cardinals um, in the next conclave. So I think that that's the big story to look for. Good. That is in, in terms of a future conclave. Well, Edward. I think, Bob, uh, just um, on a general view, I'm actually quite hopeful because I think, um, I think we're going to see more revealing of what's going on in the church, and more revealing of the corruptions, the whatever they are, whether it's doctrinal, sexual, financial, um, and just the general bankruptcy, if you like, of the, of the, of the current post-conciliar church. And I think what you're going to get is, is more revealing of that, which is actually hopeful because I think from there, uh, things can really improve. Uh, it reminds me of something that Cardinal Pell used to say quite close to before he died. He said he was actually hopeful and, and he said he was an optimist because things can only get worse. Uh, because, <laughs> because if things get worse, you can see things more clearly and then reform things um, better. Uh, and so I think also if there were a conclave to uh, this coming year, I think you're going to see quite a swing away from um, the Francis pontificate and this, this line of Francis moving much more towards a conservative line. Uh, but that, that obviously remains to be seen. But I think if there were a conclave perhaps later in the year, that might happen because I think things will get worse. I think 
I think we will see more revealing, more splits, more division. Um, but from that, I think you're going to see uh, a, a sort of foothold, really, on how to really uh, reform the church for the better in the pontificates coming uh, coming after Francis. Well, I'm not happy. Let me jump. No, no. Let me jump in here. What do you see? <laughs> what do you see, yes, Bob, Bob, as the uh, yeah. 2024 Catholic storyline? Yeah, you're not allowed to ask that question. No, I look. I, I agree with all of you. I, I would. I would even go farther. You know, we've not even gotten into the question of, you know, we've been told in another document that we need to have a theological paradigm shift, which you know, sounds like an utterly radical reformulation of virtually everything. We're not supposed to do uh, desk theology. That we're supposed to do, you know, down to earth theology. But what is desk theology if not uh, fiducia supplicans? I mean, it seems, seems to be this hair splitting about whether you're blessing a couple or whether you're blessing a, a union or, you know, it, there's so many contradictions here in, in a church that used to pride itself, uh, as many even as, as even many non-Catholics used to say, it was a church that knew what it believed in. And I think that the... Um, you know, I talked about evangelization, but I think that the the turn that the church is going to have to make, and Francis has said this, but I don't think he's followed through on it so much, is not to be worldly. Because if anything, but blessing homosexual unions is a worldly and actually first worldly uh, preoccupation. What are the countries in which that document has been accepted with some degree of, of uh, praise? Well, it's Europe, it's Germany, it's France, it's Italy. Uh, where are the places where it's been rejected? It's been in the very peripheries that the Holy Father has spoken about. And I, I, Father D'Souza uh, will say tomorrow in the Catholic thing that uh, Francis has talked about the theology of your abuela, of your grandmother, how important it is. And how many grandmothers are going to like the blessing of homosexuality? I, I think not very many, actually. So I, I agree with Edward that you know every... Every radicalism tends to generate its corrective, and, and we can only hope and pray that in 2024, the things that we're worried about um, will have enough um, power that they will they will create a counter movement of the spirit. If I can say that to you, Diane, before we, we finish. <laughs> Well, thank you, I think, Father, for asking. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, look, we're we're at our end, and we, we, we finished on a kind of a hopeful, forward-looking note. So thank you, my guests. Thank all of you who are listening or watching. And we will see you again next time at the podcast of The Catholic Thing, which you can subscribe to for free at www.thecatholicthing.org.